I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. We've spent the last two episodes with a pre-frosh Brett. Brett as a high school sophomore, then a high school junior, then a high school senior at Buckley, lost in the sleek nihilistic fantasy that is also the sleek nihilistic reality of Los Angeles, 1980 to 1982. We're now in a different episode, episode four, on a different coast, east, and of course, at a different school. Bennington. I'm Lily Analik, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. So all the way back in episode one, we learn that when Brett arrives on Bennington's campus in September, he's carrying with him two suitcases. In suitcase number one are the pages of nonfiction destined to be transformed into the fictional Weston Zero. In suitcase number two are drugs. Ian Gittler, class of 84, on suitcase number two. It was a small suitcase. It was something that a salesman could have carried into a meeting on the road. The point was it wasn't a leopard skin suitcase or duffel bag from Fiorucci. This was what basically looked like a conservative container that contained this necessary supply I sort of regretted when we initially spoke, even referring to that suitcase filled with drugs. But to me, it is kind of mythical, you know, the stuff of legend, but just the concept that that college was filled with so many young people who were wearing so much of their inner disarray on their surface and clothes and hair, just everything was all over the place. And here was this person who had a very honed persona was already wearing wayfarers he had a neat haircut he just wasn't really out of control at all on the surface he was able to somehow narrow everything down to very few variables and i guess the suitcase represented a whole host of conflicting personal ideas that were somehow just i don't know kind of contained. There's barely a discrepancy in their ages. And yet, Ian and Brett are gazing at each other from across a generational divide. I'm only two years older than Brett, but somehow I'm from a generation that was hippie revisited. It was 
New York City kids in the late 70s defining cool through psychedelic drugs and improvisational music. And I was coming out of high school having done a lot of both. I was still loving Jerry Garcia and loving John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. But weirdly, Brett was deeply invested in Graham Parker and Elvis Costello. While kids in New York in the 70s were smoking weed and trying to get their hands on LSD and mescaline and mushrooms, Brett had embraced Valium and Xanax and even cocaine. Somehow they were central to how Brett seemed to see the world. That numbness is a feeling to feeling that Brett first became aware of and then grew accustomed to during his high school years is now what he craves. He wants to feel that way all the time. Cocaine, Valium and Xanax as well, let him do just that. In other words, drugs for Brett are not about cutting loose, running wild, losing control. They're about reining in, tamping down, maintaining control. Brett's approach to his new environment is simultaneously dreamy and focused. I always thought I felt alone. I always felt like I was rising toward adulthood, 15, 16. And to have this yearning to get out of LA, to go back East, very powerful, very powerful pull on me. And then to finally be there. And I think the most... um, Memories that will, that are so, the strongest that I have in my repertoire are those first two or three days at Bennington. I drifted around Bennington, which is, this is possible at Bennington, without really applying to any of the courses. So I was kind of figuring it out. I sat in on a couple classes. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted writing classes and the writing courses I wanted to take were not open to freshmen. There's one writing class in particular that Brett has his eye on. Joe McGinnis's class was the only one I wanted to take. And I thought, I want to get into that class. So I submitted in Joe's box. I just put in about five or six pieces that were very less than zero-like. They were non-fiction pieces that I was writing my junior and senior years at Buckley. I asked Brett what they're about. It was about going to parties. It was about driving around. It was about my depression. But it was, I'm sitting at Senior Pico's with Dominic. Um, He's a little hungover from the night before. I'm still crying from something that happened at my house. Dominic realizes the man across the room is looking at us and that we should go now. The party's at Julie's tonight. We get there around 11.30. We do some coke in the bathroom, and then we sit out by the pool and smoke close cigarettes. People disappeared. Friends would not be heard from for a week. And then a lot of malevolent imagery. Everything was steeped in a kind of dread and despair. Always and never explained. Put them in Joe's box with a note saying, I really want to take your class. Next day, I want to meet you. Let's talk. Joe would later say that reading Brett's pages was like, quote, being a gym teacher and giving a bunch of kids a baseball to try and throw, and one of the kids is Dwight Gooden. Here's Nancy Doherty, Joe's then wife, now widow, on the moment Joe first saw Brett's fastball. 
I just remember him reading Brett's submissions, and they were a knockout. And he did say, holy shit, this is incredible, Nancy. You've got to read these. A word about Joe McGinnis. Joe's first book, The Selling of the President, 1968, on the Nixon campaign, was a number one bestseller and widely considered a landmark of political new journalism. It made Joe, 26 at the time, famous. In the fall of 82, Joe and Nancy, along with their young children, are living in Williamstown as Joe finishes his true crime book, Fatal Vision, about the trial of Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, an ex-Green Beret accused of killing his family. A chance encounter that summer with Nicholas Del Blanco, a writer and teacher at Bennington, had led to the workshop gig. So Brett, a freshman, gains a highly coveted spot in Joe's workshop, and his presence causes quite a stir, as he's about to tell us. Okay, listeners, it's now time for my once-an-episode abject apology for a piece of low-quality audio. When I conducted this interview with Brett, I didn't know Bennington 86 would one day be a podcast, which is why I didn't do what a good podcaster does and remain totally silent while my subject spoke. So you're going to hear both my voice and my laugh, my loud and rather annoying laugh in this next bit. Brace yourself. So I got in and I'm sure, and I am sure, I'm still friends with a couple of people from that workshop. I'm sure it was like, oh my God, what is this person doing here? The guy that I've seen around campus, the LA kid. And then, you know, three of the girls, boom, went for me. And I was completely hit on. They were inviting me over to their rooms. All three of them at separate times tried to have sex with me. And I think I did have sex with one. Um, That's nice of you. Yeah, yeah, I I, I was just laying there on my back. So I don't know what, I don't even know if you could call it sex. But so. There it is, my loud, annoying laugh. In my defense, I probably would have laughed even if Brett and I had been mic'd up and in a studio when he said, I don't even know if you can call it sex. He was imitating his hapless and helpless 18-year-old self, splayed out limply, a look of panic on his face, as an older girl writhed energetically on top of him. (laughs) Now, back to Brett. Joe asked for more pieces from me about the L.A. stuff, and he sent a packet of them to Morgan Entrican, who was Joe's editor at Simon & Schuster at the time. First of all, Joe McGinnis quickly becomes more than a teacher to Brett becomes a kind of substitute father. He and Brett spend time together off campus, at his house, with his family. Joe's widow, Nancy Doherty, remembers. Yeah, he came down, especially when the weather was nice. Hang out, have dinner. Everybody thinks of him as such a cynical guy, but he was an adorable, vulnerable, sweet person. Insightful and sad and... He's just a really complex person. Second of all, Morgan Entrican. Morgan is a young hotshot on the publishing scene. Here he is on first getting wind of Brett. I started at SNS in maybe September of 82. And so Joe called me. He said, I've got the most amazing young writer in my class. You know, I don't really take freshmen, but this guy's work is so interesting. And that was Brett. So Brett's blowing them away, left and right, at Bennington. Life couldn't be sweeter. Except he can't stand his roommate, Miles Bellamy. 
Paula Powers, class of 86, on Miles. Also class of 86, had he graduated. Miles, who's like a really nice guy, couldn't be a more mild-mannered, gentle kind of hippie, but Brett had a huge problem with him and said, I don't know, that he was talking to trees, like leaning out the window, talking to a tree outside the window. And Brett was like full of complaints every single meal about his roommate. The enmity is very much mutual. Miles on how bad it gets between them. We had a divider in the middle of the room, and my side of the dorm room was filled with broken glass and some dangerous, like hazardous materials, and it served to keep him off my side of the room, and I stayed off his side. This shared hostile space rivets Jonathan Leatham. Jonathan is the son of an artist, and at the time, an art student himself. And his description of Brett's and Miles' room has an almost hallucinatory vividness. It also offers the hint that he just may have a future as a novelist. It was entrancing because it was divided in half by a line of broken bottles. And Miles had all this poetry written on a manual typewriter, kind of pinned up on his walls. And on the other side of this Berlin wall of broken glass, there was like Brett's. I mean, I don't know if the Elvis Costello poster was in that room, but he certainly was not into artisanal, you know, beat poetry displays of his countercultural authenticity, which is what Miles was doing. So that it was a total schism. And that schism inspires in Jonathan a schismatic response. Miles was another art kid from New York City. And I mean, I later understood that his father was this famous gallerist and that he'd actually grown up around some real art royalty, but in a very scruffy kind of way. And I think he and I spotted each other as not just New York kids, but, you know, not posh enough for this place. I identified with Miles, but I was more attracted to Brett. So there's Brett from L.A. and his roommate Miles from New York. And then there's Jonathan from New York and his roommate Mark Norris from L.A. Jonathan feels like he's seeing double. Mark was from the fabulous world of Santa Monica and Crossroads School, which seemed like equivalent of going to Bennington for high school. It was like this progressive, rich, mysterious, hip place. And here was Brett, who was another L.A. kid, so it was a mirror for Mark, and they had known each other. You know, you went to this high school and I went to that high school stuff among all those other rich kids from L.A. And Jonathan isn't seeing double once. He's seeing double twice. Lisa Fader and Brixton who we conceived of as our next set of psychic twins or soul companions, Bricks. She came to school, Laura Salinger, and renamed herself after a Clash song, The Guns of Brixton. Lisa was a uh, St. Anne's girl. St. Anne's being a private school in Brooklyn. And Bricks graduated from a private school in Chicago. Really, though, Bricks is an L.A. private school kid. In her early high school years, she went to Crossroads, same as Mark Norris. Bricks. I didn't know Mark Norris at Crossroads. My boyfriend at Crossroads was Andy Bick, who was the son of Louise Fletcher. Louise Fletcher is the actress that played Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And while I was going out with Andy Bick, she won the Oscar for Best Actress, which was super exciting. And her boyfriend was Morgan Mason, who was James Mason's son, and now is married to Belinda Carlisle. 
who's a go-go. So it's like, boom. As mentioned in episode one, Briggs and Mark, the two Crossroads kids, pair up. Though Mark is already paired up with Donna Tart. Briggs on Mark. He had foppy, kind of sort of sherry-colored hair, and that almost effeminate beauty. I would always go for men that were very feminine, very metrosexual in their way. He was also quite, as I remember, not the most warm, effusive person. So that also was a challenge for me. You give me a challenge, I'm going to take it. At that point, for the most part, I was a jealous, protective female who didn't like to share my spoils with other people. But in the case of Donna Tart, I didn't mind at all because she was just so cool. So I didn't have any of those jealous bones in my body. Whereas I think there was another girl that Mark Norris also went for. Oh, that girl got the wrath of bricks, you know, and she backed off hard. But Donna Tart was an honor to share with, you know. I hope she'll say the same about me. (laughs) This all sounds, I'll admit, a bit like backstair gossip. And it kind of is backstair gossip. But it has literary value as well, which will soon become apparent, I promise. The look of another class of 86 student from L.A. also attracts Bricks' attention. Brett's. Button-down shirt, buttoned up to the top, and an overcoat. There was something very proper about the way he dressed. I remember Brett wearing Wayfarers a lot. He was just, he had a very, very strong personal style. And it was that kind of L.A. rich boy look. Others mimic Brett's L.A. rich boy look, even if they happen to be from the East Coast, even if they happen to be girls. Paula Powers. Everybody associated Wayfarers with Brett at Bennington. And I don't really recall other people wearing them except for the people around him. They all ended up getting them at one point or another. I mean, it was kind of funny because he had this whole almost cult following from day one. He always was surrounded by this entourage. People dubbed Brett and his friends, you know, the Brett Ellis Show. The setting of the Brett Ellis Show is the dining hall. Again, Paula Powers. Brunch on Sunday was like two and a half hours and A lot of time people would come at the beginning and stay for the whole two and a half hours just for the social scene. Because what else are you going to do? You're in the middle of nowhere in Vermont, you know? I mean, that was sort of like the pastime. You show up and get a seat around the periphery of the room. And then you watch as everybody comes in to figure out who woke up with whom or who's trying not to be seen with whom or who's no longer showing up with whom. So we know who the star of the Brett Ellis show is, of course. But what about the supporting players? Paula is a recurring character. Who are the series regulars? Maddie Horseman, class of 85, tells us. There's the main dining room, which is a truly gigantic room. Brett's table was on the right-hand side wall, like smack in the middle of all the lights. And they'd show up with their shades on. Amy Herskovitz, Brett Ellis, And then we have Larry David, not that Larry David. If I forgot somebody, I'm sorry. You had your shades on, I could barely recognize you. Their whole narrative seemed to be figuring out who slept with who. At the parties, you'd see him dressed in black, 
all going to the bathroom like we were going to come get them. Like, I don't want your coke, okay? I am so stoned. So there's Amy Herskovitz, and there's Larry David, whose name might almost be, no, not that Larry David, because that's how everyone describes him. Other Larry David, the Larry David who didn't create and starring Curb Your Enthusiasm. Here's Lisa Fader on Amy Herskovitz. Amy Herskovitz, his best friend. She was like a New York Upper East Side. I don't know what high school she went to. I can't remember, but I'm sure it was like Spence or Dalton. Always wearing like a somewhat frumpy overcoat or something, but she was just cool either way. She didn't look cool, but she emanated cool. I think maybe some did perceive Amy and Brett as boyfriend and girlfriend, but actually, no, it was more like they were a committee. You know, you almost wanted to know their opinions of things, that what they were talking about, whether it be movies or art or other people there, that it was going to be an interesting conversation and you kind of wanted to hear what it was about. And here's Lisa on Other Larry David. He's hard to describe. He, he had a kind of funny voice and way of talking, not a speech impediment, but something. He acted like he was a dancer, but I'm, I don't think that he was. Leg warmers. That's why I say he looked like a dancer. Leggings or leg warmers. Yeah. Larry wore leg warmers. He was always there with that committee, you know, like with Amy, with Brett. Brett mostly keeps company with writing workshop people, which both Amy and Larry are, and, and this might surprise you listeners, which both Donna and Jonathan are not. Beth Jones-Greenberg, class of 85, on the writing workshop group. We had our wayfarers, and we went to breakfast late, and we, like, get our ratatouille on toast, and drink a lot of coffee and smoke a lot of Marlboros. And we like, oh, we were so, you know, oh, things were like tortured. And if somebody was sitting at the other table who wanted to join us, we probably were like, oh no, that's not gonna happen. We were pretty obnoxious. We really were. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. interviewing Amy Herskovitz for the Esquire piece, she said this to me, quote, Brett and I met in Joe McGinnis's workshop. My mom was bad. His dad was bad. And our childhoods were so wrapped up in money and trauma that we automatically bonded. Brett was incredibly shy then, 
almost socially phobic, end quote. A thing I've noticed, the closer a person was to Breda Bennington, the more he or she talks about the socially phobic part of his personality. For example, Paula Powers. Like literally every single time I asked him how he was, which was many, many times, hundreds of times during that first year, he would say tense or sometimes he would say depressed. And he never, ever said that he was doing okay. Brett. I had a veneer of confidence, I suppose. And I was kind of groomed and I was kind of sexy and I was, but I didn't fully take advantage of it because I was kind of so unhappy. In retrospect, it's like, why were you so fucking miserable? It was awesome. Why is Brett so fucking miserable at Bennington? For the same reason he was so fucking miserable at Buckley. I remember going to New York to see my dad and my mom. My dad had just sold the U.S. Steel Building, for which his commission was something like $40 million. And my parents had separated, but they were trying to get back together. So I was there, and it was... I, I had a new view of how lavishly my father was now spending. The tickets he was able to get to Broadway shows, the restaurants we were going to, the suites, the Carlisle. Bob Ellis, now a full-fledged real estate mogul, is no less overwhelming a presence for his wife, with whom the reconciliation doesn't take, or for his son. Ian Gittler. Brett was a large young man, meaning broad shoulders, six foot two or six foot three. And in some ways he always looked like a man as opposed to a kid. So Brett seeming so adult in that way, at least physically, it was interesting how he would demure to his dad's wishes when his dad came to town. Brett is a sensitive and fragile person and hurt in ways that may not be fixable. But he's also a tough American kid and nervy. This episode with his parents, as well as a campus Halloween party, will make it into a story of his for Joe McGinnis's nonfiction workshop. Brett and I discuss. It was called Walking Across the Lawn, and I wanted to do a kind of takedown of Bennington in the style of the essay slouching towards Bethlehem. It's about 30 pages long. The first 12 or 13 pages are Bennington. I sat in classes. I ridiculed the inanity of it, made fun of the hippies. And then suddenly, we're in italicized session as I meet my father in New York at the bar at Bellman's. I down three vodka and grapefruit juices while he's chucking something in the lobby, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then it goes back to Bennington. And then it really gets darker. And there's the party where the girl is bitten badly enough that she has to go to the infirmary from the guy who's on MDMA and I mentioned like it was supposedly quite bloody and then I do this kind of summing up before the last couple of minor little scenes and it caused a shitstorm on campus and people were making copies of it and it kind of went viral and I was hated and kind of revered remember Nonfiction. This is a nonfiction workshop. The girl who got bit? Bricks. This is naughty. Um, there was this science geek. I don't know if I can say his name out loud. His initials were PK. 
and he made speed that everyone would take and cram before exams. Now, I only ever took it once because it made my scalp tingle and I felt very on edge. But Halloween night, there was a massive house party. Apparently, PK, the scientist, spiked the punch that night with another one of his concoctions, which was MDMA. This guy, dressed as a vampire, bit me in the neck and his teeth actually broke my skin. Like, he pushed me up against, you know, as a joke. And so I actually got a staph infection and was extremely ill from that, which was horrendous. They had to gouge out a section of my neck. And Brett, in his story, does not alter names, does not even alter the name of the student who, under the influence of the spike punch, momentarily mistakes himself for Count Dracula, Mark Shaw. To be noted, listeners, this is the second Mark of the episode. Mark Shaw, as distinct from Mark Norris, roommate of Jonathan, squeeze of Donna and Bricks, and the first Mark of the episode. Also to be noted, I spoke to the mysterious PK, and he says that he was not the maker of the MDMA. Here he is. There's a reason why these meth lab people are like out in the woods of Tennessee, you know, it's because the whole operation stinks. And also, occasionally, you know, you blow the cabin up. So, you know, it's not the kind of thing you would ever cook up in your dorm room. Returning to Brett and his story. I mean, looking back now at the piece, which I find unreadable, written in a horrible, flowery, a mix of Gideon wannabe with a sad sack, pseudo-literary, whatever, awful. But um, it was hugely talked about. And I got letters in my box. What people went, how dare you write this? We're not subjects of your gossip. How dare you expose this? And how dare... Mark Shaw got the angriest. He was um, described in the piece as being a, a vampirish guy who bit some girl's neck. So that was what I wrote about, and I didn't change names. And Mark wrote me a, I mean, that was, you know, I honestly, I didn't care. I did not care. Walking Across the Lawn is, in a sense, Brett's debut. His coming out moment as a writer. The writing he did at Buckley was largely for teacher's eyes only. Now he's writing for the entire school to see. Jonathan Leatham. I remember that he was impressing people and scandalizing them. The pattern for Brett's career is thus set, the template made. Impressing people and scandalizing them is what he's been about for the past 35 years. Brett is now a Bennington star, fixed in the campus firmament. But he's not alone. Others are up there with him. Jonathan Leatham on Bennington's star system. Well, I mean, first of all, no one's going to consent to this sort of literary exaggerations as a kind of absolute truth. And there were probably, I mean, not probably, there were definitely people having a more ordinary kind of college experience, but it was such a small environment and people were developing in such eccentric ways that I felt like all the seniors were famous and the juniors were right there with them and that everyone was sort of like there forging an identity that was basically like designed to go back to New York upon graduation and knock the world dead in some artistic venue or another. I felt like the idea of the college, the underlying idea was that it was a finishing school for people who were going to connect 
the personalities they had already discovered in themselves in high school with like, okay, where in the art pantheon does that, you know, does that fit? Asking herself this exact question is Brick Smith. Coming to Bennington, she knew she wanted to be an artist. She just has yet to settle on what kind. And Fame for Bricks isn't a pie-in-the-sky impossible dream. It's something tangible, attainable. Because it's something that she, like Brett, grew up around. Her mother, Lucy Salander, is the director of the Illinois Film Office. She was responsible for bringing huge motion pictures and televisions into the state of Illinois to film all the John Hughes movies. All of those, like, Brat Pack movies, like... 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club. I remember when John Hughes came to film Ferris Bueller's Day Off and I heard loads of stories about it from my mom, about organizing all kinds of things, like drive the Ferrari out of the window of a house or whatever. There was this proximity to fame, for sure. But it wasn't just the proximity. It was that, you know, when you're around people that have achieved their dreams... You're pulled forward by their energy. It's like they've set off rockets of desire in you. And if they can do it, you can do it. And then one day, she settles on the kind. I took some like extra book money that I had and went down to like either Salvation Army or one of the secondhand stores intending to buy clothes. But in the store was this black carven base for like $50. And um, I said, I'm going to buy that bass and learn how to play it. I was like in a bunch of like scrappy bands in high school, some cover bands actually, which were just heinous. And to think about them now, I cringe and just like die, but you have to start somewhere. Anyway, so I bought the bass, took it back to school. And the one person that I knew who was a really great guitar player was Ian Gitler. Like he was already super skilled. And so he showed me the notes and literally I went away and started writing that night and probably within 24 hours came up with three songs. So Lisa and I decided to form a band. Briggs and Lisa call the band Banda Drotzing, a reference to the Anthony Burgess novel, A Clockwork Orange. Banda Drotzing plays its first show in the school cafe. I was so nervous, like first proper gig, and it went really well. And I remember just feeling elated when we were done. At some point after the show, Ian Gitler said, I need to show you something. And he took me by the hand into the boys' bathroom. And there on the wall behind the cistern of the toilet, it said, Brixton is God. I mean, when you see graffiti about yourself, it could have said Brixton sucks cocks. But um, it didn't. It said Brixton is God. And I don't like to read too much into it, but that was a pretty life-affirming moment for me in terms of going forward and conquering. That was good graffiti. And in Brett's mind, Brix's Bennington fame far eclipses his own. You know, Brixton Smith... That was kind of a star.
It's the long Thanksgiving weekend. Brett, instead of going to L.A. to see his family, goes to New York to see Morgan Entrican, that young editor at Simon & Schuster. Brett isn't feeling so hot. Here's Morgan. So I remember meeting him, and uh, it's like he later told me he had, like, mono or something. He was really sick. He just looked really hungover. Maybe he was both. Ian Gittler is with Brett that day. He was staying at the Lowe's Summit on 52nd Street. I don't even think that's the name of that hotel anymore. And he had a terrible flu. And he just looked... I have a picture of him in Wayfarers from that day that he was literally a wreck. So it must have been him meeting Morgan Entrican. And I guess obviously sitting in that meeting sick as a dog and really uninterested in the discourse. And that in itself embodied the disaffection, quote-unquote, that people assigned to the narrator of Less Than Zero and kind of ascribed to the writer himself. And so the legend begins. It's shortly after Thanksgiving that Brett and Donna have their fateful first encounter. A date, believe it or not. And once again, listeners, I apologize for poor audio quality and for my stupid laugh. We were introduced by our respective roommates who hated us <laughs> and wanted us. I don't know what, thought that we would like off, each other. Yeah. Um, Brett and Donna meet for a drink. A romance fails to blossom. Not that a romance is out of the question. That I did fool around with a lot of women in my freshman year just because they were there. Not that I hunted for them. And I fooled around with a lot of guys. Listeners, I'm not being a tease regarding Brett and Donna's date. More details are coming, but in a future Donna episode rather than this Brett episode. Paula Powers on Brett and the Opposite Sex. I instantly just fell head over heels in love with Brett. It took him a while to accept me, I think, because I was always like, oh, I love you so much. <laughs> you know? And he had a couple girlfriends, Ana Sanchez, beautiful dance major. I remember he came into my room all discomfited one day saying, I just walked into Anne's room, opened the door, and she was on top of this other guy having sex with him. And I guess Brett had been sleeping with her. He never came out and said that he was gay or bi or certainly straight, but he still engaged in threesomes, you know, with a girl and her boyfriend or something. Briggs' love life is every bit as chaotic as Brett's. She has a boyfriend, Mark Norris, though she doesn't let that stop her. I was dating a guy called uh, amongst, uh, amongst others. You know, I had smoked a bit of pot, probably having sex. And then he got a phone call that his girlfriend, who was a Swiss heiress, was coming back from New York, where they had a big loft. And um, yeah, she was, I think, the heiress to Nestle's. So she was coming back and I was a little scared of her and really didn't want her to find out about this. And um, with my head spinning, I escaped out of his dorm and in the swirling mists, not seeing what was before me, there are basement stairs outside of every dormitory made of cement and I fell into the pit, smacked my head very, very hard, was horrendously concussed, managed to scrabble my way back to the dorm room with Lisa, who saw me then covered in blood and um, thought that had beat me 
called the ambulance, which came to Bennington, raced down through commons, you know, everybody looking, what's this ambulance? And then I was taken away to the hospital in Bennington. The tumble down the stairs happens just before the start of non-resident term. Non-resident term, known as NRT, is another only at Bennington phenomenon. Bennington, which I'll remind you has the highest tuition in the country, can't afford to heat itself in the winter. Its solution is to send students away for nine weeks. During this period, they're expected to secure work related to their fields of study. The blow to the head, coupled with the deification in the boys' room, helps crystallize matters for bricks. And I realized something was telling me it was time to leave school. And then I thought about it and I thought, you know what? What do I fucking need school for? I am cooked. I'm fully done. I know what I want to do and it's music. So I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, go home, start another band, and I'm going to go for it for real. Brett also leaves campus in December, though not for good. No job lined up, no internship. Unsure of how he's going to spend the next two plus months. Stepping off the plane, jet lagged and rumpled a little bleary-eyed from the Xanax he took to get through the flight, the vodka and grapefruit juices to wash down the Xanax. He discovers that what he predicted, or presaged, or intuited, or dreamt, is actually happening. Death has come to the golden land and for the golden girls and boys in it. Remember that corpse in the alley off Melrose, listeners? The quote, body of another kid, unquote? The one that Brett says he heard about his senior year at Buckley. The one that his Buckley friend and classmate, Ajay Segal, says exists only in his overheated imagination? Well, suddenly that corpse is all too real and everywhere. A few weeks before, on October 30th, the actress Dominique Dunn, niece of Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn, childhood friend of Brett's Buckley girlfriend, Julie Foreman, was strangled by her ex-boyfriend, John Thomas Sweeney, a sous chef at Ma Maison, a popular eatery on Melrose. She was 22 years old. Dominic Dunn, who I had met a couple of times, and I don't know if it was the connection was Maison because my parents went there all the time. Whatever, it was just, it was just kind of the the scene. I mean, you meet a lot of people. I mean, I went to a lot of parties, and it was a very fluid, uh, you know, young people being very fluid in terms of getting around, organizing parties. I'm, I'm shocked now to think about the sophistication of L.A. teenagers when they were 16, 17, 18, and the kind of parties that they threw and the kind of things they would do on the weekends and if their parents were away or whatever. So it must have been something like that. You know, I guess Dominique Dunn resonated because of how young we all were. And a year and a half later, in June 1984, Ron Levin, the middle-aged con artist and friend of Andy Warhol, who took a bunch of handsome Buckley boys, Brett and Dominic Gross included, out to Flipper's Roller Boogie Palace on a school night in 1980, will be killed by another set of private school boys. This set led by Joe Hunt, a graduate of the Harvard School in the Valley. Joe Hunt had started the Billionaire Boys Club, a social and investment fraternity that was in fact a Ponzi scheme with several former classmates. Hunt met Levin, tried to grift the grifter, got grifted. In retaliation, Hunt had Levin shot and buried in Soledad Canyon. Dominic briefly overlapped with Joe Hunt 
at Ron's apartment in Beverly Hills. Johan was an interesting guy. If you didn't have anything to offer, he didn't want to spend a minute talking to you. Nothing. So that was Johan. I probably was the last one to know that Ron got killed. It wasn't until I was like um, second year in college when a private investigator came to my apartment to say, have you seen Johan around? And it turns out the ex-boyfriend of the mother of Dominic's ex-girlfriend, that is Don Johnson, also has a connection to Ron, which Pat Hackett, Andy Warhol's collaborator, will learn when she talks to Don for an interview magazine cover story. Here's Pat. I was interviewing Don, and it was on the set of Miami Vice, you know, and we were in his trailer. And I don't know how Ronnie's name came up. But anyway, I was the one who broke the news to Don that Ronnie had disappeared and that no one could find him and that it looked very bad. Don said that, you know, Ronnie taught him how to do the hotel scams. The hotel scam is basically an imposter scam. You check into the hotel under a false name, cook up some tall tale about why you're there. Dr. Ronald Levin, in town for a gynecology convention, was a favorite of Ron's. And smooth talk your way into a free room. So that's what he taught Don how to, you know, what kind of stories to, you know, tell the hotel. (laughs) He said the scam that Ronnie taught him, you know, got him through some very, uh, you know a really uh, dry period. 1987 is the year of Joe Hunt's conviction. One year after that, Lee Selwyn, the Buckley student responsible for getting Dominic's twin brother Eric expelled for stashing marijuana paraphernalia on school property, and the producer of the record Brett never made with John Shanks, will be the victim of a deliberate hit and run by an unidentified driver. There's actually an episode of Unsolved Mysteries devoted to the crime. Lee Selwyn, a popular Los Angeles disc jockey, had a fondness for motorcycles. Late one night, an argument led to a high-speed duel. Lee Selwyn was run down and killed. His murderer is still at large. Brett. People disappearing. Yeah, I mean, Dominic, then Ron, then Lee. But this all leads to what? I don't know. What does this all lead to? Brett spends that first week or so back at the house on Vista Valley and out of parties with Mark Norris, also home for NRT. Brett is taking it all in by slow degrees. The death that has already occurred, the deaths that are still to come. He's horrified and he's thrilled. Thrilled because his premonition has been fulfilled. He saw what others missed and thus doubly horrified. The blank look on Brett's face might not budge, but the blankness is a mask. And under the mask, he's roiling and thinking, thinking, thinking. And then, abruptly, he reaches a decision. Inserting a sheet of crisp white paper into his Olivetti, he answers that question, what does all this lead to, by writing a letter to Joe McGinnis. Joe's widow, Nancy Doherty, reads it to us. It was an undated letter, but he must have written it in late 1982 because he was talking about what he was going to do over non-resident term. Brett says, if I do not get a job over NRT, a paying job, I'm going to go ahead with an independent work-study project, which will take the form of a novel. 
I have some notes, a couple of pages of outline, and some dialogue worked out. If I start this novel, parenthesis, tentatively titled Less Than Zero, a bleak, self-absorbed title, if ever there was one, for an independent study work program, how would you want to work it out? Would I send chapters to you on a weekly basis, or would I write the whole thing in eight or nine weeks, and then have you remark on it later? And then he asks after me, the kids, he wishes Joe happy holidays, and so on and so forth, and signs it Brett. And that's it. Next time on Once Upon a Time at Bennington College, the spotlight of our attention moves to Donna. Her turn to squint into its sharp glare, get blasted by its bright heat. Paul was attracted to her. He went to Claude and he said, oh, there's a young woman in your class uh, who's very, you know, Paul had this very pretentious 19th century or 18th century way of talking. He said, this is young woman that I'm very attracted, very charmed by in your class. And uh, he said, I think her name is Donna. And Claude said, oh yes, she's the only tart I have with three T's. This has been a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, script edited by Bruce Handy, production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz, production coordination by Terrence Malangone, studio coordination by Sean Cherry, artwork and design by Kurt Courtney, marketing by Brian Swarth, Josefina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last.